Thousands of Israelis are taking to the streets in violent protests with police. They're angry the Israeli parliament has stripped the Supreme Court there of a key power to oversee senior governmental appointments and policy. The law that upsets the balance of power coming up on this Monday, July 24th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, China's foreign minister has not been seen in public in a month. Analysts are not optimistic. The Chinese system is a closed system. We don't know what goes on within the box. I suspect whatever has happened to him is not good news. China's Communist Party has a long history of officials disappearing. Also, a new study looks at scoliosis, curvature of the spine among stone workers. It's 401. News headlines and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. A prolonged heat dome is keeping up the extreme temperatures in the southwest and is shifting eastward this week, turning up the heat on much of the rest of the U.S. At the same time, wildfires are breaking out in Arizona and Washington state, spurring evacuations. Climate change is not only intensifying heat waves and wildfires, flooding is getting worse, too. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports at the same time, people are increasingly moving to places in the U.S. most prone to flooding. The places with the most flood risk are concentrated on the east and Gulf coasts. In 2021 and 2022, the places with the most flood risk gained more than 380,000 net residents, according to a new analysis by the real estate company Redfin. That's more than double the number of people who moved to flood-prone places the previous two years. The population swelled in coastal areas from Texas to Florida to North Carolina to Maryland. South Louisiana and the Florida Keys were exceptions. Both have lost population in recent years in the wake of major hurricanes. Migration into flood-prone areas is particularly notable because climate change is causing floods to get more frequent and severe due to heavy rain and rising seas. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. The White House is decrying the judicial reforms Israeli lawmakers passed today as unfortunate. The law strips the Supreme Court there of a key check on the government that Israelis have demonstrated against for months. And with today's vote, fiery protests are carrying on into the night. The BBC's Paul Adams reports from Jerusalem on what it means for the prime minister. It is a symbolic start, a symbolic victory for Benjamin Netanyahu because it just enables him to say to his supporters and to the parties that he is trying to keep around him in this rather shaky coalition that, yes, he is able to realise their aspirations. And so, for the time being, it shores up his authority. That's the BBC's Paul Adams reporting. The State Department is still trying to find out what happened to a U.S. soldier who ran into North Korea last week. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports it comes as Pyongyang keeps test-firing missiles. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller says the Biden administration has been using all of its channels to North Korea to request information about Travis King, the U.S. private who was last seen leaving a tour group at the demilitarized zone and running into North Korea. We have um, uh, made outreach to North Korea to let them know that uh, we wanted to ascertain the whereabouts of Private King. We wanted information about his safety, um, but we have not received any response from them at all. Miller is also condemning North Korea for recent missile tests, which he says violate multiple U.N. Security Council resolutions. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The company cleaning up the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station in Plymouth will not be allowed to dump contaminated wastewater into Cape Cod Bay. Today, the state denied the permit modification the company sought. The company is Holtec. It had planned to discharge up to 1.1 million gallons of wastewater. WBUR's Barbara Moran reports. The Department of Environmental Protection's draft ruling says Cape Cod Bay is a protected ocean sanctuary under Massachusetts law. So dumping industrial waste into the bay is not allowed. Andrew Gottlieb is executive director for the Association to Preserve Cape Cod. The group opposed the permit. It's a good day for Cape Cod environment. It's a good day for the people who enjoy Cape Cod. It's a good day for our fishing and shellfishing and tourist industry that's reliant on clean water in Cape Cod. In a statement, Holtec says the company is disappointed with the decision and will, quote, look to evaluate all options for the wastewater. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. The state Senate plans to include $20 million in what it's calling flexible funding to help farming communities after recent floods. Senate President Karen Spilka made the announcement today during a visit to the town of Hatfield in Western Mass. State agricultural officials estimate more than 75 farms lost at least $15 million worth of crops during this month's storms. Members of the legislature's Joint Committee on Transportation are considering bills to tamp down distracted driving. One proposal would ban filming or live streaming while driving. Another would increase fines for texting and driving. Transit advocates say the new fines and regulations may do little to change driver behavior. Stacy Thompson is head of the organization Livable Streets and says infrastructure changes would have more impact. Sometimes we can't change the behavior, but we can change how fast someone is able to drive because we put more speed bumps and speed humps and bike lanes down on the road. And so it's harder for them to drive in a distracted way. Pedestrian deaths in Massachusetts hit a record high last year. Former U.S. Senator and New Hampshire Attorney General Kelly Ayotte is running to be the state's governor. Ayotte says she's running because, quote, she fears that New Hampshire is one election away from turning into Massachusetts. Republican former New Hampshire Senate President Chuck Morris is also running for the GOP nomination for governor. Chris Sununu announced last week that he is not seeking re-election. In the forecast, still hot out there, 87 degrees, sunshine dimmed by a few clouds in parts of the region. Should have mostly clear skies overnight tonight, though, about 70 for a low. Tomorrow, a mixed day, showers and thunderstorms taking turns with some sunshine. Warm again, temperatures in the mid-80s. It's 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It has been a historic and polarizing day in Israel, a day that has seen mass protests against a just-passed law that remakes the balance of power in the country. The law strips Israel's Supreme Court of a key check on the power of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government. President Biden had urged Israel not to pass it without a broad public consensus, and today the White House is calling the new law, quote, unfortunate. Israel's president is calling this a time of emergency. While NPR's Daniel Estrin has been out all day speaking with protesters, he joins me now from Jerusalem. Hey there, Daniel. 
Hi, Mary Louise. Wow, Daniel, I can I can hear you are right in the middle of it. Tell tell me where you are, what you see. Yeah, I'm on a bridge overlooking a pretty amazing standoff. I, I'm seeing two Israeli uh, police trucks, water cannons. Uh, one of them has just now approached protesters, thousands of them in the streets, blocking a main road with Israeli flags. And now we're seeing this police water truck charging and toward the protesters. It's spraying one, two, three volleys of water. This is an incredible sight uh, happening right in front of the Supreme Court. This is where protesters have been gathered all day, and now they're being dispersed with, uh, with water cannons. Wow. Okay, and so why is this so controversial? We said, we said this will reduce the court's oversight over the government. Just spell out for me how so. You know, this is really the first major move that the government is making in a much broader effort to weaken the court's oversight. Um, This law will uh, block the Supreme Court from being able to intervene in the hiring and firing of public officials and also intervene in their decision-making. So the Supreme Court can no longer tell the government such and such, you know, decision or appointment of a senior official is unreasonable, doesn't serve the public interest. This has animated so many protesters because it is the Supreme Court that is the main protector of so many individual freedoms in Israel's system of government. Uh, the, the court protects women's rights, equality, LGBTQ rights. So take a listen to one Israeli protester I met, Maya Or. Israel is in a very, very bad place today, in a very, very sad place today. And I hope the government will think that being a democracy, meaning not only the power of the majority, but taking into consideration the minorities and their rights. And so now there will be a petition against this law, and the question is, will the Supreme Court actually uh, take this up? We heard her say just there, Israel is in a very, very bad place. How is Netanyahu defending this move? He says this law is the essence of democracy. It will allow the elected government, he says, to carry out its agenda. And he says uh, he is still in favor of dialogue with the opposition. He's willing to hold a dialogue with them for even uh, next four months on any future judicial changes. And the protests are expected to continue or what happens now? Certainly, we will see protesters continue to block roads in the coming week. There are concerns about military reservists refusing to show up for duty, uh, and that has leaders worried about rising tensions on Israel's border with its enemies. And legal experts are worried what could the government possibly do now that this new law um, unshackles it from uh, some oversights, some oversight powers of the Supreme Court. NPR's Daniel Estrin in the thick of it today in Jerusalem. Thank you, Daniel. You're welcome. The Weight Watchers Way is pretty well known by now. Join up, eat according to a point system, connect with other members, and hopefully lose weight. That has basically been their model for the last 60 years. But a new class of drugs known by names like Ozempic and Wagovi has changed everything. Originally developed to regulate type 2 diabetes, these drugs cause weight loss. And now Weight Watchers is getting in on the prescription game. Maria Aspen is a senior writer for Fortune, where she's been following this story. Welcome. Thanks so much, Mona. It's great to be here. 
So, Maria, Weight Watchers is in the business of selling weight loss. Can you tell us about the business rationale behind this decision to move into offering weight loss medications? Sure. So, Weight Watchers has weathered lots and lots of fads over the course of its uh, history. But these drugs are just everywhere, um, you know, in pop culture, in business. And we've seen both Weight Watchers and a newer dieting company called Noom embrace these drugs, sometimes known as GLP-1s, in the, in the past year. Uh, and for both of these companies, it's kind of an acknowledgement that the diet industry is moving on and that these drugs are inevitable. And if they don't get on board, they might be left behind. Yeah. I mean, Maria, for any of us who have struggled with our own weight and turned to places like Weight Watchers or Noom for help and support, this kind of feels like a big about face. This is diametrically opposed to what places like Weight Watchers have told their clients for years now about how to sustainably and effectively lose weight. In your conversations, is that something that Weight Watchers leadership is thinking about? Yeah, it is. And and I would agree. You know, these uh, Weight Watchers, again, has has been around for 60 years, basically telling us all, well, you just have to do the work. And now executives say the CEO says, well, you know, the science has evolved. And so we are, too. Um, I think they're trying to thread the needle of showing that their old way is still useful while accepting that there are these new technologies, new medications out there that are just fundamentally more effective than their core product has been shown to be. Um, There are also a lot of reasons why people might not want to take, you know, these so-called miracle drugs or might not have access to them or might not be able to afford them. So there's still potentially a place for the sort of historical traditional businesses of what Weight Watchers and Noom have sold, but they're very clearly betting on trying to embrace the new without completely losing all of their customers who have liked the old. Over the last several years, we've started to see a small societal shift towards body positivity and a real de-emphasis on diet culture, which can be harmful to many people's mental health. Are there concerns that big companies like Weight Watchers and Noom, they're making these drugs more available, could lead to renewed discrimination against people who are living in bigger bodies? Absolutely. That was one of the first concerns raised by uh, Tegris Osborne, executive director of the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance. You know, she pointed out that the presence of these drugs, the availability of these drugs has actually, in, in her experience and perspective, has actually increased the stigma and discrimination towards fat people because, you know, before it might have been, oh, well, you just haven't put in the work to lose the weight. Now it's it's even easier to lose the weight. You you could just take this miracle drug and, you know, you're just lazy that you haven't done it. So there is a real concern that, you know, the drugs are made by pharmaceutical companies that are not generally household names. Um, but Weight Watchers, everybody knows it. Noom is, again, a, a newer company, but something that a lot of people have heard of. And uh, Osborne and others are are concerned that by having these household names embrace these drugs and promote and sell these drugs, it's going to actually damage a lot of the work that the fat acceptance and body positivity movements have done. That was Maria Aspen, senior writer at Fortune. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
big weekend at the multiplex. The films Barbie and Oppenheimer blew past predictions to spark the fourth biggest box office weekend in Hollywood history and the highest weekend not led by a Marvel or Star Wars sequel. So what does the triumph of Barbenheimer tell us about the state of the movie biz? We asked NPR's Bob Mondello. Leave it to a hot pink comedy. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. And a three-hour biopic to pack cinemas that superheroes have been leaving half-empty since the start of the pandemic. 30 million people turned out to see movies this weekend, about half of them for Greta Gerwig's $155 million blockbuster, Barbie. It scored the top opening weekend of 2023 and the top opening ever for a film directed by a woman, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, about the father of the atom bomb was no bomb at the box office with $80 million, a serious, talky drama that opened better than the summer's Mission Impossible and Indiana Jones sequels. And while usually a big blockbuster swamps everything else at the multiplex, Barbenheimer's rising tide lifted all boats. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning still raked in a perfectly respectable $20 million. The surprise indie hit Sound of Freedom matched that number. And as those four movies sold out, overflow crowds filled up whatever was in smaller auditoriums, the industry is so pleased that on Friday, Dead Reckoning star Tom Cruise told an interviewer he was planning a personal Barbenheimer double feature. It'll probably be like Oppenheimer first and then Barbie. And in response, Barbie's Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie tweeted photos of themselves holding tickets to see Mission Impossible. Call it a Hollywood love fest for an expanded marketplace. And that's the key here. Since the start of the pandemic, there have been some hits, nearly all of them superhero or action sequels, aimed at male audiences. That's because studios, mostly led by male executives, tend to go with what has worked before and seem to think that men choose what to see and their girlfriends and wives go along. I thought I might stay over tonight. Did you what? I'm actually not sure. But those male-oriented sequels invariably monopolize the box office the week they open, with no halo effect on other films. Barbie, which is not a sequel, and which has women and girls making up almost 70% of its audience, left plenty of room for male-oriented hits. Oppenheimer, also not a sequel, is one of those hits. Whether lessons will be learned from this is anyone's guess, but with writers and actors on strike for the foreseeable future, studio executives will have time to study study up and no doubt come up with creative solutions. It's a pretty safe bet, for instance, that there'll soon be a Barbie 2. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. How do you conduct diplomacy with China when the Chinese foreign minister has disappeared? That story coming up in about 15 minutes. The Dow grew by more than a half percent today. That stretches its rally to 11 days, the longest winning streak in six years. S&P rose four-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq picked up two-tenths of a percent. A Boston dumpling factory is facing fines after allegedly exposing its employees to hazardous conditions. The U.S. Department of Labor says its inspectors found the operator Chinese Spaghetti Factory, Inc., had not installed required safety guards on a dumpling machine's rotating shafts. An employee was seriously injured by the machine last year. The company now faces nearly $200,000 in fines. It's 419. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com and Evita at ART. Don't keep your distance from the beloved Tony-winning musical about Argentina's Eva Perón. Final performance Sunday, amrep.org. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Some sunshine and some clouds around this afternoon. Overnight tonight should have clear, starlit skies, about 70 degrees for a low. Then for tomorrow, some thunderstorms and showers in the morning and afternoon, but also some sunshine working its way in. Another warm day, temperatures in the mid-80s. Wednesday should be sunny, dry, and hot, pushing 90 degrees. 87 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations, including associations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Dozens of young Latino men in California have developed severe lung disease, and at least 10 have died after working in shops that make kitchen and bathroom countertops. As NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports, public health experts believe there's a lot more sick workers in the countertop industry. For countertops, there's a popular material called quartz. Quartz is a kind of engineered stone. Folks like Martha Stewart have extolled its virtues. Quartz needs no sealing or polishing like granite or marble. And because of its durability, it will always remain glossy and smooth. But compared to granite or marble, quartz contains a lot more of the mineral silica. Silica dust can fly into the air when a slab of raw countertop material gets cut to order. And this dust can damage the lungs. So in recent years, when cases of lung disease started appearing in the countertop industry, public health experts became worried. Things are heading in the direction that we feared. You know, we've had more and more people presenting very severely. Shafali Gandhi is a pulmonologist at the University of California, San Francisco. She and some colleagues have just published a report describing over 50 sick countertop workers in California. Some died or needed lung transplants. Almost all were Spanish-speaking Latino men. And they're all very young. Now, work sites can control silica dust with ventilation, sprays of water, and proper masks. But California's Workplace Safety Agency says it looks like most countertop fabrication shops in its state are not complying with federal silica rules. That's why the agency has fast-tracked the development of new protections for these workers. David Goldsmith is an epidemiologist at George Washington University. He says the newly reported cases in California are concerning. I am certain that this is an underestimate of the severity of the problem in California, and by inference, it's an underestimate of the severity of the problem in the whole United States. He says it seems that other states aren't paying as much attention to this, despite an urgent need to figure out how widespread this kind of lung disease in the countertop industry really is. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News. 
When studios first started streaming content online, it felt too good to be true. All of a sudden, there was something for everyone at every minute of every day. Now, with writers and actors on strike, that age of plenty has turned into a race for survival. Streamers like Netflix and HBO's Max are canceling seasons, taking movies and shows off their platforms, angering not only creators, but also fans. NPR's Elizabeth Blair dug into what it means. Here's some sound from a movie you cannot watch. The lockdown will commence. Come on! In five. The movie is called Crater. It cost a reported $53 million to make. It's a sci-fi adventure about teens who live on the moon some 200 years in the future. This is from the trailer. The sky on Earth, is it really blue? Yeah. Wow. Crater debuted on Disney Plus in May and then disappeared two months later. It seems very abrupt. Now, some people, like Betsy Bosdeck and her two kids, did get to see Crater before it got yanked. It's pretty emotionally intense about friendship and separation, and it was a great family movie night for us. Bosdeck is the editorial director at Common Sense Media, which reviews content for kids. She was disappointed. Sort of the promise when a lot of these streamers launched was that you got access to the whole catalog forever. So I think it's a little bit of a, a feeling of a rug being pulled out from under you. And for creators of content that gets removed? It's soul crushing. There is nothing we can do. Zoe Marshall is the screenwriter of another movie that was removed, this time by Paramount+. Plus. Maybe start thinking about what life might look like after football. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Fantasy Football is a comedy about a teen girl whose father is an older professional football player. I've lived in seven cities before my 16th birthday. All because my football star dad is fumbling away his career. I wanted it to be a smart picture of what it's like to be a smart young black girl who has a positive relationship with her black father. And make money. Historically, writers, actors, and others made money for the content they created. And then, when their shows were rerun or sold to another network, they got more money, residuals. But with streamers, it's more typical to get a flat fee. And if your show gets taken down, it's kind of like taking it off the market. As far as fantasy football being removed, they may never do anything with it again. So I may not see any additional residuals for something that made them an untold amount of money. Untold is the key word there. It infuriates content creators that streamers don't share ratings, which makes it hard for them to negotiate future projects. A show can even become a hit, and yet the actors and writers still don't make any extra money. But corporations do share information with investors. On Disney's last earnings call, executives said that removing content would give them a tax write-off. CEO Bob Iger explained another reason for removing content. There's too much of it. When they first launched Disney+, Plus, We wanted to flood the so-called digital shelves with as much content as possible. Thinking that would attract subscribers, or sub-growth. Didn't happen, he said. We realized that we made a lot of content that is not necessarily driving subgrowth, um, and we're getting much more surgical about what it is we make. He also pointed out that a streamer can't just put shows out there and hope people find them. You're spending a lot of money marketing things that are not going to have an impact on the bottom line, except negatively. One thing we also know is that our films, those that are released theatrically, big tentpole movies in particular, are great subdrivers. Uh, but we were spreading our marketing costs so thin 
that we were not allocating enough money to even market them when they came on the service. But the beauty of streaming was supposed to be options, something for everyone. I'm getting really sick of my favorite shows being canceled after one season when they're left on massive cliffhangers. 15-year-old Kara Horton was a huge fan of the series Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies, which was just nominated for two Emmys. My brilliance turned to dust, fever chills each time we touch, the big sea you hear Paramount Plus canceled the Pink Ladies after one season. They do say they're shopping it around. Still, Horton was furious. Immediately my first thought was, what can we do to save it? She started a petition that now has more than 42,000 signatures. I think streaming services have really forgotten that it takes a couple seasons before a show, like, gets big and picks up. She's absolutely correct. Maureen Ryan is a contributing editor to Vanity Fair. She's been covering the entertainment industry for 30 years. Her new book is called Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood. She says the promise of streaming has been broken. What is the point of this golden streaming age if the creative people, the consumers, if they're all kind of agitated about things, you know, them not getting what they thought they were going to get, you know, it's just, it's a really rough moment. And I think it's basically Streamageddon's Reckoning. That would be like the bad action movie I would make out of all of this. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. A growing number of countries is calling to halt mining on the ocean floor. The topic will take center stage at the International Assembly this coming week. That story is ahead in about 10 minutes on WBUR. Legendary singer Tony Bennett has many ties to the Boston area. We'll hear stories about the late singer later on this afternoon. Sunshine and some clouds in parts of the region now. Mostly clear skies overnight tonight, about 70 degrees for a low. And for tomorrow, sunshine, but it should be dim by showers and thunderstorms every now and then. Another warm day. Temperatures in the mid-80s. This is WBUR. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Because I'm Curtis Blow, and I want you to know that these are the boys. Next month, hip-hop celebrates its 50th anniversary. We're marking moments that changed, starting with the first rap album to be a nationwide hit. Curtis Blow, the album, and Curtis Blow himself were really the blueprint for the format of hip-hop that we know and love today. How Curtis Blow changed hip-hop, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Break it up, break it up, break it up. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Illinois, the college hazing scandal at Northwestern University has widened after multiple lawsuits were filed by student-athletes with some alleging sexual abuse as well. The latest suit was filed by an ex-volleyball player, the first female to sue the university over allegations she was retaliated against for reporting physical mistreatment during a hazing incident that required a doctor's care. Attorney Patrick Salvi represents the woman identified only as Jane Doe. He says she was humiliated by her coaches. 
it is a very stark example of how Northwestern put itself and its brand uh, well above the well-being of a, of a student athlete within a program where a broader problem existed. Meanwhile, former Northwestern quarterback Lloyd Yates is also suing the school, alleging a hazing that included sexual abuse. Northwestern says it's working to ensure appropriate accountability for its athletic department. Elon Musk has replaced Twitter's instantly recognizable Bluebird logo with an X. As NPR's Bobby Allen tells us, this major rebranding is just the latest shakeup at the struggling social media app. Musk says losing the Blue Bird logo and rebranding as X is part of a long-term major shift at Twitter. Musk wants to make Twitter into a so-called everything app, similar to WeChat in China, where users bank, chat, make purchases, and scroll social media, all on the same app. But longtime Twitter observers say unrolling a name change for future new features risks confusing and alienating loyal users. Then there's the practical question. What is a tweet on the X app called? As some on Twitter have pointed out, Xing sounds a whole lot like deleting. Bobby Allen, NPR News. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street today. The Dow gained 183 points, up about half a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Charles River Watershed Association says it will use $400,000 in federal funds to help mitigate the effects of climate change along the Charles River. Congresswoman Catherine Clark says the money will help mitigate the future risk of flooding. She says we're already feeling the effects of climate change. Brutal heat, devastating floods, raging forest fires. We are no longer talking about predictions or estimates. We can see and feel this crisis for ourselves. Some of the money, she says, will be used to better manage stormwater runoff. Nearly one month after the last state budget expired, negotiators in Massachusetts House and Senate have yet to settle on a current budget. Today, House Ways and Means Committee Chair Aaron Michaelwitz is recommending that the governor consider filing a second interim budget to continue to fund state payroll and services. Governor Maura Healey's first interim budget will expire in one week. Representative Michaelwitz would not say what disagreements in the legislature are holding up a compromise budget. An employee at Devon's Federal Prison in Central Mass is accused of accepting thousands of dollars from a wealthy inmate. Federal prosecutors say starting in 2019, the unnamed inmate allegedly funneled more than $90,000 through a property management agreement to New Hampshire resident William Tidwell. Tidwell has worked as a correction counselor at Devon since 2000. He's set to appear in federal court in Boston at a later date. And this fall, Massasoit Community College in Brockton plans to be the first among the state's community colleges to offer a degree in black studies. The two-year associate degree program will incorporate history, literature, social sciences, and the visual arts. Massasoit's Corrine Sauvignon helped design the field of study. Students who take this degree is not necessarily someone who may want to continue to pursue a Black Studies four-year program, but someone who wants to take cultural content into the scope of their career pathway. Sauvignon says the degree will prepare Massasoit students for fields including law, nonprofit work, and education in an urban setting. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top choice colleges. Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling college essays. More at myprompt.com NPR. 
Should have a clear, breezy night ahead tonight, about 70 for a low. Tomorrow could make it to the mid to upper 80s. Chance of showers, but also a fair share of sunshine. Wednesday could have unbridled summer sunshine. 87 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. On a Monday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Almost exactly one month ago, China's foreign minister, Qin Gong, had a meeting in Beijing with Russia's deputy foreign minister, as reported by state TV. And then Qin vanished. He's not been seen in public since. It's a remarkably long absence for such a high-profile official. And as NPR's John Ruich reports, it's raising some questions. One place where there were a lot of questions was Aspen, Colorado, at an annual security forum that took place last week. China's ambassador Xie Feng was asked about it and didn't have much to say. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was asked about it. And here's National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan being asked about it. Do you expect to meet him again? Uh, we don't know. Literally, there's we, we no, no intelligence on this. We don't know. All we know is that... Unconfirmed uh, rumors about Xi's fate have been swirling, linking his absence uh, to everything from political infighting to an extramarital yeah. affair. In early July, the foreign ministry said Qin was absent due to unexplained health reasons. But since, ministry spokespeople appear to have backtracked, saying they have no information about him. Whatever the case, analysts think his career is probably over. I suspect whatever has happened to him is not good news. That's Kishore Mabubani, a former Singapore ambassador to the United Nations and a keen China watcher. China's secretive ruling Communist Party has a long history of officials disappearing, often in purges or for disciplinary reasons. In many, if not most cases these days, they eventually reappear as subjects of investigations and often end up in jail. Mabobani says in this case, it shouldn't make much practical difference in terms of policy. The Chinese system is a closed system. We don't know what goes on within the box. But we do know that what comes out of the box are fairly stable, predictable policies. And so you can work with the stable, predictable policies, regardless of who the personalities are. It's worth noting that in China, the foreign minister is not the top foreign policy official. That's the head of the party's foreign affairs commission, Wang Yi. And he hasn't gone anywhere. In fact, he's been filling in for Qin at meetings. Joshua Eisenman, a professor at Notre Dame and author of a new book on China's relations with Africa, is less sure that Qin's disappearance is inconsequential. China wants to deepen its relations with the so-called Global South and regularly extols the benefits of its political system as an alternative to Western democracy. And it's in this context that the foreign minister's unexplained disappearance has real negative consequences for China's image and influence. It calls Beijing's global leadership into question. Deng Yuan, a former editor at a party newspaper, says Qin's disappearance may also have implications for our understanding of Chinese leader Xi Jinping's authority. Qin was believed to be close to Xi and got two important assignments in quick succession, first as ambassador to the U.S., then as foreign minister late last year. But he adds one caveat. 
Until we know the precise reason for Qin's absence, he says, it'll be hard to know if there are implications for Xi's power. Nadej Roland, a distinguished fellow at the National Bureau of Asian Research, says there's at least one takeaway. That whole story is a reminder. It's an illustration of how the party state operates and its nature. It's a cautionary tale. Soon we may learn more about it. The leaders of China's parliament are slated on Tuesday to discuss appointments and dismissals of officials. It's unclear, though, if Qin is on the agenda. John Ruich, NPR News. This week, delegates from more than 150 countries are meeting in Jamaica on the agenda deciding whether to allow commercial mining of the ocean floor. Rocks on the seabed could provide materials to help fight climate change. This idea is controversial, and reporter Daniel Ackerman is following the debate. Hey, Daniel. Hey, Mary-Louise. Okay, so rocks on the seabed that are useful against climate change, where are they? And explain. Yeah, so there are rock formations all over the ocean, but one area of interest to the mining industry is in the eastern Pacific. That is where billions of potato-shaped rocks called polymetallic nodules are scattered across the seabed. And these nodules are rich in the kinds of minerals used in most electric vehicle batteries today. So minerals like nickel and cobalt. And advocates for seabed mining say that if we could get these minerals from the middle of the ocean, that would be less destructive than mining on land. Okay, now this has not actually been done, at least not commercially yet. Um, Explain the controversy. What are the concerns at play here? Yeah, so there are concerns about how this mining would impact the health of the ocean. So the technology that's being tested today is essentially a giant vacuum cleaner, like the size of a small house. And it would crawl back and forth along the seabed, sucking up those nodules. Marine biologists who oppose seabed mining say that this process would damage life on the seabed And it would also cause noise and light pollution that could impact sea life well beyond a mine site itself. Now, who gets to decide who governs seabed mining? Well, in international waters, that decision is made by the International Seabed Authority. That's a group affiliated with the United Nations. It's made up of 168 member countries. And so they're meeting in Jamaica right now in part to discuss progress on the so-called mining code. So this mining code is a rule book that any seabed mining operation would have to follow. So that includes measures to limit environmental damage and plans to tax mining companies. The Seabed Authority has been working on this rule book for more than a decade now, and that discussion continues this week. More than a decade, you said? That's not exactly, (laughs) I'm not sensing urgency here. Why is this taking so long? Yeah, well, the mining rulebook is a big, complicated document. It is hundreds of pages long, and every word of it requires consensus from all the member countries. So there's just a lot to hash out. Uh, So is the goal to finalize the rulebook at this week's meeting? Well, not quite. Uh, Every delegate that I've spoken to says there's just too much that is still unresolved. So these negotiations are going to stretch on perhaps another year or more. And that's a problem because the island nation of Nauru announced back in 2021 that it would apply for a mining license in two years' time. So checking my watch here, Mary Louise, those two years have elapsed. Nauru has a corporate partner on this mining project called the Metals Company, and I asked CEO Gerard Barron if they still plan to apply to mine. That's our legal right. You know, what we said is that we would have an application ready by the end of this year. Uh, we're working hard on finalizing that application as we speak. And if they do submit that application before there are mining regulations, 
international law is not entirely clear on how to proceed. Huh. But we just heard him say that's our legal right. How do the other members of this authority, the CBED authority, see it? Well, about two dozen member states have called for some form of a moratorium to block any seabed mining, at least until regulations are complete. So we're going to find out this week if that group of countries can sway the rest of the authority to their position. And, you know, this is an unprecedented moment in the history of seabed mining. The, the world has to decide whether and how to move forward with a brand new extractive industry. A lot to keep our eye on as this meeting gets underway in Jamaica. Daniel Ackerman, thank you. Thank you. Daniel Ackerman reports on climate change and mining. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Julia Menson. When Menson was in graduate school, her mother was diagnosed with advanced stage lung cancer. Menson dove into researching the disease and discovered there was a new experimental drug that had a small chance of helping her mom. So she brought it up with her mother's physician, Dr. Charlotte Jacobs. Dr. Jacobs was skeptical, but Menson had done her research, so she pushed back. You know, here I am, I'm like a 26-year-old grad student in psychology arguing with, you know, one of the top oncologists in the world about a treatment plan. And she says, no, it's incredibly risky. You know, she could bleed out. She could be paralyzed for what remains of her life. I could lose my license. I could go to prison. Like, absolutely not. And so we go back and forth for a while. And she says no, and I leave the office disappointed. And then we came back two weeks later for whatever the next appointment was. And she said, I took your idea to the tumor board. And I said, what's the tumor board? And she said, it's a gathering we have once a month of all the top oncologists in Northern California, where each of us gets to present one case. And I discussed your idea And they pretty much unanimously agreed that it was a non-starter for all the reasons that I already explained to you. But, you know, I really thought it was worth discussing and thoroughly thinking through. And I'm sorry that we can't do it. And it turned out she was right. Um, Just weeks later, my mother passed away from the lung cancer. And I still remember that conversation 17 years later as the time where I felt most heard, perhaps in my life. Um, And I have never seen her since when my mother passed away and, you know, never got to explain that my entire research program right now is about receptiveness to opposing views. And I think part of the reason that story is particularly precious to me is because I spend a lot of time trying to convince people that 
making somebody feel heard doesn't require changing your mind. And to me, that is like a very stark example where, you know, she did not change her mind, but I still felt heard. Julia Menson of Lexington, Massachusetts. Menson is a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. You can find more stories like this one on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com slash public. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in just about 15 minutes, the U.S. Justice Department and Texas are headed for a legal fight over Governor Greg Abbott's floating barrier system in the Rio Grande to stop illegal border crossings. That story is still ahead. In the forecast, increasing clouds now, but we should have a mainly clear sky overnight tonight, about 70 degrees for a low. Then for tomorrow, some showers, thunderstorms, but sunshine as well. Temperatures in the mid to upper 80s. Join us at City Space Monday, August 7th for a conversation about ice cream with local makers. Come ready for a Sunday as City Space becomes an ice cream parlor for the night. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. The time is 4.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circus Smirkus, New England's traveling youth circus, coming to Waltham July 27th to 30th and Newbury August 4th and 5th. Tickets at Smirkus.org. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations. Because I'm Curtis Blow, and I want you to know that these are the boys. Next month, hip-hop celebrates its 50th anniversary. We're marking moments that changed, starting with the first rap album to be a nationwide hit. Curtis Blow, the album, and Curtis Blow himself were really the blueprint for the format of hip-hop that we know and love today. How Curtis Blow changed hip-hop tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. More people around the world are on the move than ever before. The changing climate is one reason why. In Central America, climate change is undermining traditional agriculture, and that is particularly difficult for women and girls who depend on farming. It is contributing to what experts call the feminization of migration. NPR's Joel Rose traveled to Honduras to find out more for our series, Uprooted. Come on in. We've been waiting for you. Vitalina de Jesus welcomes us to her home on a steep hill in western Honduras in a village called Los Ranchos. Her house is tiny, just two rooms. One of them is made of adobe, and the floor is bare dirt. Roosters, chickens, and dogs wander around the backyard. We sit next to a large wash sink with clotheslines strung all around us. The yard is also bare dirt and turns to mud when it rains. 
Aquí se vienen grandes llovederas, huracanes, ya no hace el tiempo de antes. We have heavy rains and hurricanes here. Weather patterns have changed. It's different now. The rainy season lasted three months, and now we have heavy and long periods of rain. It's not predictable anymore. That's a big problem in a country where almost 30% of the population works in agriculture. Jesus says coffee harvesting used to be steady work. It helped her raise 10 kids on her own after her husband died. But she says that work isn't reliable anymore. That's why most of her children have moved away, except for her youngest daughter, Jesus Santiago. She works picking coffee during the harvest season. The gallon is like this bucket. Santiago picks up a bucket to show us how much she gets paid. She makes a little more than $2 for each bucket she fills. On a good day, she can pick enough coffee berries to fill 10 buckets. But those good days are few and far between now, in part because of the changing climate. When berries ripen, they have to be harvested quickly. If not, they fall off and it rots on the ground. Santiago has been working since she dropped out of school when she was seven. Now 23, she's tried to migrate to the U.S. twice already and is planning to try again. I don't want to live like this forever. I want to grow, get a better full-time job. I want a better future, a different future. The changing climate is undermining agriculture in Honduras, making it even harder for people like Santiago and her mother to survive. Experts say these climate disruptions are falling particularly hard on women and girls in rural Honduras, where generation after generation of women with little education have depended on agriculture. My name is Betilde Muñoz Pogosian. Uh, I would argue that it's mostly women and girls affected by climate change and extreme climate events. Muñoz Pogosian is with the Organization of American States in Washington, where she works on behalf of vulnerable populations. She says climate change is contributing to what's known as the feminization of migration. We are seeing women migrating in relatively similar numbers as men, which is, you know, 50-50%. This wasn't always the case, particularly at the U.S.-Mexico border, where the vast majority of migrants used to be men. But over the past decade, that's been changing. In 2012, only 14% of the migrants encountered at the border were women. That's grown to more than a third, 35%, in 2019. There are a lot of reasons for the shift, but Munoz Pogosian believes climate change is one of them. Climate change kind of adds up to the series of other factors that are present there that have to do with poverty, with inequality, violence. I think climate change adds up to the cocktail of reasons of why people migrate. Honduras has one of the highest homicide rates in the world and the highest rate of femicide in Latin America. There's also widespread poverty and deep-seated corruption. Muñoz Pagosian argues that those factors can obscure the link between climate change and migration. There's an environmental explanation that is usually hidden in those other more economic explanations or violations of human rights or violence. Kids gather for a pickup soccer game in a village called Colonia Seis de Mayo in northwest Honduras. It's a tiny place. The primary economic activity here is farming. But several young women we spoke to don't see that as a viable option. Of course we would like to stay here and work the land, but the production is not enough to live off of. Maria del Carmen Caballero is 22 years old. She dropped out of school after fifth grade. That's not unusual in rural Honduras, where families often don't have the resources to continue their children's education. 
Caballero says her parents rent the land they're farming. And if they lose their crops, they still have to pay rent. She doesn't see any other opportunities. We pray God gives us the opportunity to go somewhere else to find work, because the situation here is difficult, ideally to the U.S., so we can help our parents build a home. That's another big economic engine here. Children who migrate to the U.S. and send money back to support their families. You can see these houses built with remittances all over Honduras, a constant reminder to those who've stayed behind. Like Jesus Santiago and her mother, whom we met earlier, Vitalina de Jesus wipes tears from her cheeks as she explains. You see, those who have migrated have a better livelihood. They have good homes, cars, good land, because they migrate to work hard. And my daughter is hardworking. She's not lazy. She's bright. Those who leave don't always head straight for the U.S. Often they migrate internally first, trying to find work in a bigger city in Honduras. Santiago has tried that as well. I went to Progreso last summer. I worked at a banana packing plant for four months. She moved to El Progreso, several hours by bus from her home in the mountains. The plan was to save money to help her mother, but Santiago says that didn't happen. It was a struggle because I had a lot of expenses, meals, housing, transportation, and pay wasn't great. I was breaking even. Santiago ended up back with her mother in Los Ranchos. Now she's picking coffee when she can. But Santiago says it's not enough. She's planning to try again to migrate to the U.S. Yes, I want to try again. I'd miss home and miss it terribly, but I also want to get ahead. The last time Santiago and her brother tried, they made it several hundred miles into southern Mexico. But they were caught by immigration authorities in Veracruz and deported back to Honduras, broken both financially and emotionally, Santiago says. Her mother, Vitalina de Jesus, has mixed feelings about this plan. It's sadness and pride because she wants a better future, and I can't give it to her here. I do wish she goes, because there's no hope here. I tell God that she's going to make the journey, De Jesus says, and she'll get there with a bright future awaiting. Joel Rose, NPR News, Los Ranchos, Honduras. And our report was produced by NPR's Marissa Peñalosa. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin since 1793. From Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in the forecast. Clear skies overnight tonight, about 70 for a low. For tomorrow, clouds, showers, and some sunshine, about the mid-80s. Want some new summer reads on us? Sign up for WBUR's Beach Books newsletter in the month of July, and you could win a $30 gift card to Beacon Hill Books. We're picking from our subscribers each week, so sign up for Beach Books at WBUR.org beachbooks. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has refused to remove a long string of buoys from the river that divides Texas and Mexico. Medics say the barriers are severely injuring people trying to cross the river. Our leaders have made the border as dangerous as possible to try to deter asylum seekers and migrants. It's Monday, July 24th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story is coming up. Also, Twitter has ditched the cute little bird logo for an X. We'll find out why Elon Musk thinks the X will make a difference. The cost of home insurance is skyrocketing as more companies refuse to insure homes on the front lines of climate change. Homeowners who don't get insurance often face leaving their homes. And Tony Bennett left his heart in San Francisco, but he still had a soft spot for Boston and some Bostonians he worked and played with. It's 501. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Thousands of people are protesting into the night in Israel, blocking major roads after the country's right-wing majority parliament today narrowly passed a contentious law that strips the Supreme Court of a key oversight power over the government. It's part of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's plan to overhaul the judicial system. President Biden, who urged Israel not to pass the law without a broad consensus, calls the vote unfortunate. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more. Israeli police have sprayed foul-smelling water on protesters for the first time in six months of street protests. The protesters are blocking major roads in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. A former Mossad spy chief and former head of the Shin Bet Domestic Security Service addressed protesting crowds in support. Israel's opposition leader Yair Lapid said he would petition the Supreme Court against the law, setting up a potential constitutional crisis if the Supreme Court intervenes to block the law. This law allows the government to hire and fire officials and make decisions, and the court will no longer be able to overrule them on the basis that they're unreasonable. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jerusalem. Voting rights advocates are preparing to challenge a new congressional map that was passed by Alabama's Republican-controlled legislature. And here's Hansi Lo Wang reports, it's part of a legal fight that could help determine which party controls the U.S. House of Representatives after next year's elections. Formal objections to the map approved by Alabama's Republican-led legislature are due to a panel of federal judges by Friday. Brittany Carter, a legal defense fund attorney who's representing some of the map's challengers, says that together, the one majority black district and another where black Alabamians make up just under 40 percent of the population old enough to vote do not fall in line with the Voting Rights Act. We know 
that Black voters are not going to have an opportunity to elect a candidate of choice if they only make up a little less than 40% of the voting age population in a district. If the lawmaker's map is rejected next month, new districts are set to be drawn by court-appointed experts. Hansi Luong, NPR News. This week, more than 150 companies in the S&P 500 are reporting quarterly earnings. NPR's David Gura reports that list includes some of the biggest names in tech and energy. Microsoft and Alphabet, Google's parent company, report earnings on Tuesday. And Meta, Facebook's parent company, is on Wednesday. Later in the week, we'll hear from Exxon. Companies like consumers are dealing with the effects of higher interest rates. The Federal Reserve starts a two-day meeting on Tuesday, and Wall Street expects that after the Fed took a break from hiking interest rates at its last meeting, it'll increase them again by a quarter point. David Gura, NPR News, New York. And Wall Street was higher by the closing bell. The Dow was up 183 points. The Nasdaq up 26. The S&P 500 up 18. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Some communities in Franklin County in Massachusetts are still making repairs to infrastructure after storms dumped several inches of rain on the area Friday. New England Public Media's Adam Frenier has more. In Conway, the National Weather Service says at least five to seven inches of rain fell. Town Administrator Veronique Blanchard says as the first storm moved in, she had one feeling. I was in despair because we just had other rain events. With Conway already saturated, the latest weather event caused roads, many of them gravel, to wash out, among other damage. There's no price tag yet, but she says all of the rain is made for a tough financial situation. Believe me, we're going to be pursuing every single avenue we can because we're going to need help to get through this. Otherwise, I, I don't know quite how we're going to survive this financially. Greenfield and Deerfield also saw significant damage from Friday's rain. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Frenier. There is a brief hearing today for the Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking top-secret information on the Internet. 21-year-old Jack Teixeira did not appear at the proceedings in Boston Federal Court. He's charged with six counts of willful retention and transmission of national defense information in violation of the Espionage Act. His lawyers are asking that Teixeira be freed while he awaits trial. Prosecutors have not filed a response to that motion. He's due back in court in September. New Jersey-based energy company Holtec cannot dump contaminated wastewater into Cape Cod Bay. Today, the State Department of Environmental Protection denied the company's request to discharge more than one million gallons of water from the decommissioned Pilgrim nuclear power plant into the bay nearby. The department ruled that Cape Cod Bay is a protected ocean sanctuary under the state's Ocean Sanctuaries Act. The measure prohibits dumping industrial waste into protected state waters. And the new Boston University Center for Computer and Data Sciences is in the running for the World Building of the Year. The so-called Jenga building is being considered due to its unique stacked structure, also for its sustainability efforts. The building is being considered along with 249 others. We should note Boston University holds the broadcast license for WBUR. In the forecast, still pretty steamy out there now. 86 degrees should be clear tonight, down around 70 for a low. And for tomorrow, inching to the mid and upper 80s once again. Chance of showers, but also a good share of sunshine expected. And then for Wednesday, lots of sunshine, dry, pushing 90. This is WBUR. It's 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org.
This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The Department of Justice sued Texas today over Governor Greg Abbott's controversial floating barrier in the Rio Grande. Abbott ordered the floating wall placed in the middle of the river separating the United States and Mexico to prevent migrants from illegally crossing into Texas. The DOJ says the barrier violates federal law and presents, quote, serious risks to public safety and the environment. It is the latest development in a growing battle between Republican states and the federal government over border security and immigration. Joining us now from San Antonio is reporter David Martin Davies of Texas Public Radio. Hi there. Howdy from Texas, Juana. So Dave, you have been down to Eagle Pass where Texas has deployed these buoys. Tell us, what do they look like and what are the concerns about them? Well, this is a thousand foot string of large orange balls, each one the size of a wrecking ball. And there are large weights anchoring them down right in the middle of the Rio Grande. And these balls are almost impossible to climb over. And we've been told that there's webbing under them so that you can't swim under them. The concern is that people will get caught in that webbing along with river debris. And that creates a hazard for the migrants. Governor Abbott said the purpose of the barrier is to keep people from crossing the river or to slow them down or also divert them to crossing where they can be more easily apprehended. And that's why Abbott says he wants to put miles and miles of these into the river. Okay. San Antonio Congressman Joaquin Castro is a Democrat, and he called these buoys barbaric. And Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican, says that's just not true. But is making the Rio Grande crossing more dangerous for migrants? Is that a part of Abbott's strategy? Well, Abbott says he's trying to prevent drownings. And members of the Border Patrol, the Texas Troopers, and the Texas National Guard have uh, been saving migrants from drowning when they can. But it is also important to note that a recent email from a whistleblower, emergency medical trooper in Eagle Pass, they allege, he alleges that the Texas border agents were ordered to push migrants back into the river, including small children, and denying migrants water during the heat wave. I've been covering the border since the late 1980s, and unfortunately, migrant drownings, it's always been part of the border. And then after crossing the river, there's the threat of migrants dying in the South Texas desert from thirst and incredible heat. So the possibility of death has always been used as a way to deter people from illegally coming into the country, and still they come. So it does look like the buoys are making the river more dangerous, and that's part of the federal government's argument against them. The Justice Department is taking legal action against this floating barrier and what it sees as Abbott's increasingly aggressive border actions. That's something the governor calls Operation Lone Star. But I mean, just looking at this, it seems like Abbott perhaps wants this fight with the Biden administration. Yeah, the deadline that Washington had to remove the buoys that came and went today, they're still in the water. A judge is going to have to decide if those buoys need to come out of the Rio Grande. So the issue is... This is the river that separates the United States and Texas from Mexico, but Abbott is declaring an emergency and he wants to assert that it's the border of Texas first and the U.S. second. So he says Texas should have operational control of the border and confronting illegal immigration. But the courts have ruled in the past that this is the federal government's responsibility. Then Abbott counters saying, you know, the federal government isn't doing its job. However, there's no evidence that Abbott's Operation Lone Star is providing any additional border protection that we don't already have with the U.S. Border mm-hmm. Patrol. Abbott is clearly focused on getting attention and elevating this wedge issue that the Republican Party thinks gets right. them votes. 
There are GOP talking points like and the border we'll, is wide open, all right. but that's not Reg- false. That's all false. All right. Texas Public Radio's David Martin Davies in San Antonio. Thanks. Thank you. To Turkey now. It's been more than five months since more than 50,000 people were killed by an earthquake that also left more than a million people homeless. Turkey's president has promised rapid reconstruction of homes, but reconstruction efforts are lagging, so much so that in the city of Adiyaman, people are salvaging and reselling old parts of buildings. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports. Adiyaman was among the hardest-hit cities on February 6th. Several months later, the effects of the quake are starkly evident, both in the crumpled buildings around the city and in the way lives continue to be disrupted and too often dependent on the kindness of others. Sitting under a tree on a hot summer morning, a group of women and children are waiting outside a bakery. 34-year-old Hatija agrees to speak with the reporter if her surname isn't used. Many of the people approached for this story worried about official retribution if they spoke candidly about the earthquake and the government's response. Hatija is in a temporary apartment after losing her home in the quake, and she's applied to move into a shipping container as her next will. Hatija says she comes here most mornings because the bakery gives away loaves of bread to needy families. We are waiting for our turn, then we get in the queue. I left my kids at home. It's too hot. So I left them at home. Working inside the makeshift bakery, squeezed into a temporary building, Verhan says ever since the earthquake, customers who can afford it leave a donation when they buy their bread. Verhan uses that extra money to make the loaves that he gives away to quake victims each day. Our own bakery was demolished in the earthquake, so we're using this prefabricated structure for now. All the houses are gone, either demolished or uninhabitable, so we stay about an hour away. We rent there because there are no places to rent in this area. With officials saying more than a million people in Turkey were displaced by the quake, Verhan says everyone in downtown Adiyaman is waiting for the government to give the go-ahead for new construction. We're hearing that might begin this month, but it's not clear yet. We can't start before there's an official announcement. Once we see that, we'll start. All at once, the group waiting outside the bakery snaps into a somewhat organized line. They hold out their sacks and receive three loaves each. A few children try to come back for more, but get shooed away. Hatija says she's heard the government is making plans to provide assistance to people who want to rebuild their own homes, but she's not quite sure how it will work. They say if you want, you can make your building in your lot. The buildings get demolished, so anyone who wants to rebuild, they can do it. That's what I have heard. Officials have been talking about an assistance package for private rebuilding, but it's not ready yet. Some say it will include a half million Turkish lira, nearly $20,000 for rebuilding a house, and half that amount for rebuilding a workplace. But until it's official, nothing is certain. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, stung by criticism immediately after the disaster, is now pointing to progress. He told a Berlin audience recently that all the debris from the quake had been cleared away and reconstruction was underway. But here in Adiyaman, it's clear that the rubble has definitely not all been removed. That's the sound of heavy equipment moving into place, preparing to demolish a badly damaged building that's several stories tall. A nearby security guard says the neighbors have been complaining for some time about the cement dust swirling around the neighborhood. Not far away, there's another staple of life in Adiyaman these days, empty lots transformed into earthquake junkyards. 
Doors, window frames, bed springs, and other household items are neatly stacked, and families are browsing for things they can use. I meet a woman named Emine. She's looking for a door. She too fled the earthquake zone in February. Now she says her family is trying to do what they can to rebuild. My house is lightly damaged, but since it's on the ground floor, the inner walls were badly damaged. I just came back after five months. We couldn't stay here. There was no place to stay. Now we came back and we're doing the construction with our kids. We stay on the roof. She says she's glad to be back. Though like many people here, she really can't say when life will start to feel normal again. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Adiaman, Turkey. A pesky otter in Santa Cruz, California, is vexing surfers. For several weeks, the creature has harassed people in the water, even climbing on surfboards and chewing on them. Aaron Malsbury reports from member station KAZU. Over the weekend, several otters drifted through the kelp beds near a popular Central California surf spot in Santa Cruz. And there's four of them right there. Doesn't look like any of them are hurt. Mark Woodward is among a dozen people watching from the cliff, looking for one otter in particular. Here's another, Mitch Beyer. We actually just drove down from San Francisco to see the sea otter. Known as Otter 841, the brown furry fugitive has become famous for getting onto surfboards and sometimes destroying them. Surface Patricio Guerrero and Paul Riera describe one recent strange encounter. Encounters of the otter kind. It started kind of like biting the board. So I started spinning in circles and the otter was like following the tail. And then it got bored of me and went to Paul. And then it really did some work on Paul's board. It just took like a chunk of the nose of the board I was riding. Wildlife officials have tried for weeks to catch the otter. They want to return her to captivity where she was born five years ago. Her mom, pregnant with her, had been captured after she'd been harassing kayakers. A team of experts has baited Otter 841 with surfboards. They've tried different types of nets. Scuba divers even used a special underwater propulsion system with a trap. Colleen Young, a biologist with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, describes that dive. The visibility was poor and the kelp was really thick. And basically I was able to get under her but I wasn't able to get the trap high enough out of the water to actually get her in the trap. So it was extremely close and a very, very frustrating day. This is not the first time they've tried catching 841. She started approaching surfers last September. Mark Woodward took the photos that went viral of the otter getting on surfboards. He says it's hard not to root for her. I'm not trying to make light of it because I know it's a serious situation, but it's almost become comical. You know, with all the attempts they make, and they just can't get her. She is one smart otter. Officials say they'll continue trying to capture the otter as long as she keeps getting too close to surfers. For NPR News, I'm Erin Malsbury in Santa Cruz, California. Climate change is disrupting agriculture in Central America and forcing millions to migrate to the U.S. Some farmers in Honduras, though, are finding ways to adapt so they can stay. That's tomorrow on Morning Edition. You can listen live on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. This 
is All Things Considered. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. There were violent protests in Israel after lawmakers there limited some of the powers of the Supreme Court. Some experts believe Israel's democracy is at risk. That story coming at about 15 minutes on WBUR. The Dow grew by more than a half percent today. That stretches its rally to 11 days, the longest winning streak for the Dow in six years. S&P rose four-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ picked up two-tenths of a percent. A Reading man has been charged in a $44 million scheme to defraud Medicare. David Santana is the owner of two telemedicine companies. He's accused of submitting falsified claims to Medicare for equipment such as orthotics and back braces and knee braces. The U.S. Department of Justice says he will plead guilty to conspiracy to commit health care fraud. Santana faces fines and up to 10 years in prison. It's 519. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Listen to WBR any place you're heading this summer. Just tap to listen live and catch up on everything that's happening in the news. Download or update the WBUR app now. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by View Boston, now open. A new experience atop the Prue with three stories of 360-degree panoramic views, featuring food and drinks and opportunities to discover hidden gems of Boston and snap a selfie on the outdoor roof deck. Tickets at viewboston.com. Clear skies tonight, about 70 for a low. Tomorrow, in the mid to upper 80s, chance of showers, chance of thunderstorms, and sunshine. All of those coming up tomorrow. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations, including associations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Insurance is a critical part of homeownership in the U.S. It is a requirement for most mortgages, and it offers protection against disasters like hurricanes and fires. But as NPR's Nathan Rott reports, home insurance is becoming harder to afford and to get as the world warms. The wildfires were burning more frequently near her home outside of Yosemite National Park, so Beth Pratt did what a homeowner in a wildfire-prone area is supposed to do. She put a metal roof on her home, replaced wood decks with laminate, installed a water tank and fire hose. I have remortgaged my house, you know, spent my life savings doing everything right. And it didn't matter to her insurance company. I just got a letter, not even a, hey, we want these things done. It was, we're not renewing you. Allstate, Pratt's insurer of 31 years, had deemed wildfire risks in her area too great. For Pratt, the problem wasn't just that she wanted insurance to cover any losses in the event of a wildfire. It's that if you're someone like me as a mortgage, you would be in default of your loan if you don't have insurance. Pratt's story is becoming more and more common. Earlier this year, major insurers Allstate and State Farm, both of which declined to comment for this story, announced that they would no longer write new home policies in California, in part because of growing wildfire risk. 
Existing policies in some cases are not being renewed. In California and elsewhere through the United States, we're marching steadily towards an uninsurable future. Dave Jones is a law professor at the University of California, Berkeley. He was the state's insurance commissioner until 2019. We're simply not doing enough fast enough to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And as a result, climate change continues to accelerate. Major insurers know from their models what climate scientists have been warning for decades, that climate change is fueling more intense and in some cases more frequent wildfires, floods and storms. More extreme weather disasters means more damaged or destroyed homes, which means bigger losses for insurance companies and higher rates for millions of homeowners. George Hosfield is with LexisNexis Risk Solutions, a data provider for insurers. It might not feel gradual to everybody, but you're seeing a, a gradual increase in rates to catch up with the increases in costs. The cost of home insurance has risen 21 percent nationally since 2015, Hosfield says. Hotspots like Colorado and Texas have seen increases of 40 percent. Florida, 60 we're going through a hard time. Michael Jaworski is Florida's insurance commissioner. Since I started this job, I get about 50% congratulations and 50% condolences when I run into someone who's asked me why I'm here. Just this month, two major insurance companies announced they're pulling back from Florida. In the last two years, more than half a dozen of the state's smaller insurance companies have gone bankrupt as back-to-back -back hurricanes caused billions of dollars in losses. Increasingly, people are ending up on state-backed programs, generally called insurance of last resort. Think of it like a safety net for people who need insurance but can't get it from the private marketplace. People like Beth Pratt near Yosemite. But it does not cover as much as private insurance. And uh, I did get a quote. I will be going on it. It's double what I was paying. Some of her friends, she says, have seen their rates quadruple on the state-backed plan. These are not luxury items for myself or others. You have to have insurance. So, you know, I think that policies and, and how we insure people probably has to change. Especially, she says, as climate risks continue to grow. Nathan Rott, NPR News. Twitter is now X. Elon Musk has ditched the company's famous blue bird for an X logo. Musk says it's part of a radical change he hopes to make, turning Twitter from a social media platform into an everything app. Well, we are joined by NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Mary Louise. I can't keep up. Um, Twitter, it's a globally recognized brand. Why change the name? Well, ever since Musk took over Twitter, he's been talking about this moonshot goal, right? Expanding Twitter to become the everything app, as you mentioned. So that would include banking services, online shopping, ordering an Uber, and so on for the app to become an all-in-one app, right? In China, this sort of super app exists. It's called WeChat, and Musk says the U.S. ought to have one. Musk is now projecting an X on Twitter's San Francisco headquarters. He's replaced the company's Bluebird with an X on the app. He's really trying to push this new X identity. But what's really notable, Mary Louise, is he's doing this while not offering any new services. I talked to Joshua White about this. He's a finance professor at Vanderbilt University. And White told me that the name change looks like a desperate attention grab. And he says, you know, changing the name of a company after 17 years without offering anything new, it, it just doesn't make much business sense. Sort of like buying Coca-Cola and ditching the iconic bottle, but not changing the formula. Okay. And the name X, why X? 
Musk has long been enamored with X. Back in the late 90s, he founded an online company called X.com that later merged with another firm and became PayPal. Musk's other company, Tesla, has a popular vehicle called the Model X. One of his children has a name that is shortened to X. And well before launching this rebrand, Musk changed the parent company of Twitter to X Holdings. He wrote yesterday on Twitter that he likes the letter X, which <laughs> seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so why X? Why is Elon obsessed with X? That's a question I don't have an an the answer to. Um, you know, some historians of Elon Musk say it's probably sentimental. As I mentioned, his wealth has roots in his early company, X.com. So, you know, maybe it's some kind of nostalgic nod to that. Well, maybe you could tweet at him and ask him or whatever we're calling it now. You could X at him. I'll um, X at him. <laughs> yeah. What kind of reaction are you hearing on Twitter or X or whatever it is? Yeah, people are mocking it. One pointed out that the name and logo of the app is now the universal symbol for deleting something, which of course is relevant since so many people are fleeing Twitter right now. As we know, tweeting is part of our everyday language. So if we can no longer say we're tweeting, then what? Are we Xing? Right? What are we what are we even doing on the site anymore? Now Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey didn't seem so bothered by X. He wrote that, quote, the Twitter brand carries a lot of baggage and that all that matters is the utility it provides, not the name. Okay, thanks, Jack Dorsey, for that. Um, but look, Mary Louise, tech companies changed their names. Facebook became Meta. Google became Alphabet. So Twitter becoming X is just the latest, but I'm not so sure it's going to be an easy sell to the public. Well, and if the grand plan here is to have a, an everything app, how real is that? How close are we? Yeah, it's really a pipe dream right now. It's unclear if he can ever make that happen. There are numerous challenges to making a super app in the U.S., especially since regulators in Washington have become wary of any one tech company having too much control over our digital lives. But White, the Vanderbilt professor, made another point. Twitter has been tumultuous since day one of Musk's reign, uh -huh. devastating layoffs, advertising collapsing. So who would want to use that kind of app for shopping or sending money to friends? Transacting in money and transacting online takes trust. You've got to know that the platform you're using has good cybersecurity. And I think a lot of consumers and users of Twitter have lost trust. All right. That is closing on our reporting today from NPR Tech reporter Bobby Allen. Thanks, Bobby. Thanks, Mayor Louise. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox are off tonight after they took two of three games against the New York Mets over the weekend. Sox host the Atlanta Braves for two games starting tomorrow night. Coming up on WBUR, the reason many in Boston's music community are taking the death of internationally acclaimed singer Tony Bennett so personally. That story is in about six minutes on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Rhodes Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. And Zoo New England, Zoo What Makes You Happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. Zoonewengland.org. 
I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need, a news source we trust. Tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news. The news you trust. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden is set to sign a proclamation establishing a national monument to Emmett Till and his mother. The black teenager from Chicago was tortured and killed 68 years ago after being accused of whistling at a white woman in Mississippi. Till's lynching and his mother's insistence on an open casket helped galvanize the early civil rights movement. Here's White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre. Sadly, Emmett Till's murder uh, really was a catalyst for the civil rights movement. How, 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 uh, how else can, there are many ways we can lift up um, his memory, but this is an important way to do that. The White House says it's working to protect the places that tell a more complete story of U.S. history, while at the same time arguing that, quote, Florida's new educational guidelines are seeking to erase parts of black history. American Airlines pilots were supposed to vote on a new four-year contract agreement today, but as Becca Moore of member station KERA tells us, they've postponed voting indefinitely to consider a new deal. The original agreement offered American pilots a 42 percent pay raise, but the union that represents them said that fell short of a recent pay increase offered by United Airlines. The new offer from American now matches those increases. Pilots also would get a ratification bonus, more sick time off, increased life insurance, and a medical privacy clause. The new deal's expensive for American and possibly customers. It would add a billion dollars in costs for the Fort Worth-based carrier over four years and could lead to higher airfares. No word yet on when American pilots will begin voting on the new agreement. I'm Becca Moore in Dallas. Well, stocks finished higher on Wall Street as the tech sector begins its earnings reports this week. The Fed is also meeting to discuss inflation and whether to raise interest rates again. The Dow gained 183 points, up half a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The company that's cleaning up the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station in Plymouth will not be allowed to dump contaminated wastewater into Cape Cod Bay. Today, the state denied the permit modification that was sought by the company Holtec. It planned to discharge up to 1.1 million gallons of wastewater. WBUR's Barbara Moran reports. The Department of Environmental Protection's draft ruling says Cape Cod Bay is a protected ocean sanctuary under Massachusetts law. So dumping industrial waste into the bay is not allowed. Andrew Gottlieb is executive director for the Association to Preserve Cape Cod. The group opposed the permit. It's a good day for Cape Cod environment. It's a good day for the people who enjoy Cape Cod. It's a good day for fishing and shell fishing and tourist industry that's reliant on clean water on Cape Cod. In a statement, Holtec says the company is disappointed with the decision and will, quote, look to evaluate all options for the wastewater. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. The state Senate plans to include $20 million in what senators are calling flexible funding to help farming communities after recent flooding. Senate President Karen Spilka made the announcement today during a visit to the town of Hatfield in Western Mass. State agriculture officials estimate more than 75 farms 
lost a total of at least $15 million worth of crops during this month's storms. Members of the state legislature's Joint Committee on Transportation are considering bills to tamp down on distracted driving. One proposal would ban filming or live streaming while driving. Another would increase fines for texting and driving. But transit advocates say new fines and regulations may do little to change driving behavior. Stacy Thompson is head of the organization Livable Streets. She says the infrastructure changes would have more impact. Sometimes we can't change the behavior, but we can change how fast someone is able to drive because we put more speed bumps and speed humps and bike lanes down on the road. And so it's harder for them to drive in a distracted way. Pedestrian deaths in Massachusetts hit a record high last year. A man has died after he was stabbed at a home for low-income veterans in Dorchester. Boston police say officers arrived at Hartford Manor shortly after noon today to find a man who had been stabbed. He was pronounced dead on the scene. Officers say the victim and a person of interest in the case knew each other, and there is no ongoing threat to the public. The nonprofit Pine Street Inn helps run the center. In the forecast, hot still, sunshine still moving in and out. Tonight we should have mainly clear skies, about 70 for a low. Summer thunderstorms tomorrow, but also a good bit of sunshine back up in the mid-80s. And then for midweek, Wednesday, sunny and hot could reach 90 degrees. 85 degrees in the Boston area at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with the new season of Silent Witness. Every dead body tells a story in this long-running forensic crime drama starring Amelia Fox. New season streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Let's go to Israel now, where violent protests have erupted in response to a new law just passed today that limits the powers of that country's Supreme Court. Protesters say the new law gives Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu too much power, that Israel's very democracy is at stake. Well, the idea of democracy under threat is, of course, all too familiar here in the U.S. to get a sense of what's the same and what is different and what this new Israeli law may tell us about the state of democracy there. I am joined now by political analyst Dahlia Schindlin from just outside Jerusalem. And Dahlia, I know you're normally based in Tel Aviv. As I say right now, you're in a village near Jerusalem. What does it feel like there today? Well, I think I feel here like people do everywhere in the country, which is very, very concerned. I would say even nervous. Now, everybody is a big word. Let's go by the election results. About half of Israelis who did not vote for this government, plus from all polling we know, a certain slice of people who did vote for the government are deeply opposed to the legislation that was passed today, which essentially removes one of the tools that the Supreme Court has used to place constraints or to reject government decisions Mm -hmm. on occasion. Now, this is what we call the reasonability basis. It's a legal reasoning that the right-wing parties that currently hold the government have been trying to get rid of for a long time because they don't want any constraints on the executive. So just practically speaking, I'm trying to understand this. This is if the government does something that the Supreme Court thinks is unreasonable, the court used to be able to block it. And as of today, with this new law, they won't be able to. Is that the gist? 
Yeah, that's the gist of it. You know, another one of the chief concerns is that the government could hire inappropriate people in government who essentially corrode the idea of accountable and responsible government and can fire people at will if they don't conform to the government's perspective on everything. Now, some people might say, but that's called being allowed to govern. Well, there is no such thing in a democracy as governing without checks and balances on state power. Stay stay with that point, checks and balances, separation of powers, because when we're taking on this question of whether this new law threatens democracy, democracy looks and operates quite differently in Israel than how we understand it here in the U.S. It does. And I think that this is something that I think has been misleading over the years um, in the sense that the rest of the world has often looked to Israel as essentially a model democracy on some level. And I think that it is worth realizing that Israel can't be compared to Western democracies that are most of the time at peace. Israel has essentially always been either at war or involved in a protracted military occupation, which is anti-democratic by nature. But the second major issue is that Israel has declined to build some of the key institutional pillars of democracy from the start. There is no constitution, for example. There is no constitution, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. We have no real separation between the legislature and the executive powers because it's a parliamentary system. Mm -hmm. We only have a single chamber of our parliament, unlike nearly all other democracies. No president with a veto. Our president is ceremonial, and we're not part of international courts. We don't even have term limits on the prime minister because it's a party system. And then going directly to the courts... Because that's what this new law deals with. You know, here in the U.S., there are, of course, all kinds of questions about perceived yes. politicization of the Supreme Court. How about in Israel? Well, that, that accusation has been around for a long time. And I think that from the moment the Israeli right wing took a populist turn, and when I say populist, I mean ultra-nationalist and certainly targeting uh, citizens such as, you know, critics of the government, civil society, the Arab-Palestinian minority in Israel, left-wingers. And this goes back about a decade. When that happened, then people began challenging these policies and bills and legislation in the Supreme Court. And thus began the theme, a very, very consistent, almost unrelenting theme that the court has imposed an unwanted universalist liberal perspective on the country. So square this with the argument that the conservative right in Israel would make, that they are saying this new law will restore the balance of powers there. I've, I've seen the justice minister being quoted saying this is an effort at fixing the justice system. Fact check that for us. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, that is the big theme of the government. Even the prime minister this evening said this is not the end of democracy. This is the realization of democracy. I can't square that for you. What it does is remove one of the few constraints that exist on the power of the executive. I just I, The only way I can explain it to you is what the government means. What they mean is that once there are elections, nothing should constrain what the government does with the mandate that it's been given by the people because the majority rules. Now, you cannot redefine democracy to be a stripped down form of elections alone. The idea of majority rules has never been the meaning of democracy. It's always been a matter of protecting of a representative government and protection of the individual. You can't do that without checks and balances on power. You can't do that without protecting institutionally the full range of civil rights. Without those, elections aren't meaningful anyway. Dahlia Shindlin is a policy fellow at the think tank Century International, also a columnist for Haaretz. She joined us from near Jerusalem. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Fans around the world are remembering beloved vocalist Tony Bennett, who died Friday at the age of 96. 
the legendary musician had ties to Boston. As WBOR's Andrea Shea reports, a local rock radio station helped kick off Bennett's career comeback in the late 1980s. Tony Bennett crooned his way to fame through the 1950s and 60s with hits like this. I left my heart in San Francisco. But Bennett's star hit a rough patch in the mid-1970s when rock and roll started dominating the airwaves. Chachi Lopret worked at the Boston radio station WBCN in the 80s. Around 1986, I received a package in the mail from Columbia Records, and inside was an album called The Art of Excellence by Tony Bennett. And as a kid, having you know an Italian background, my parents would listen to Tony Bennett all the time. And so I became known as the first guy to ever play a Tony Bennett record on a rock radio station. How do you keep the music playing? How do you make it last? Lopret was friends with Bennett's son, Danny, who was orchestrating a resurgence for his father. And back then, the rest of the country looked at WBCN to see what we were playing, and a lot of times they followed suit. Next thing you know, Tony's on the Grammys with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Tony's doing the David Letterman show. Uh, my next guest is truly one of the great singers of all time. His latest album, which I have a copy of right here, is called The Art of Excellence. And, and so I was a part of the beginning of all that. And I will tell you, Tony was always grateful. He was a very sweet guy. Sue Eau Claire is a longtime jazz publicist in Boston. Really warm human being, easy to work with. And so many have passed in the last few years from his generation. Eau Claire arranged interviews for Bennett a few times when he was in the Boston area, including for his appearances at the Newport Jazz Festival in 2002. He was such an entertainer. He was not only just a good singer, he was the guy with the big endings, you know. <laughs> and he was like this Italian stallion with his arms in the air at the end. <laughs> if happy little bluebirds fly beyond the rainbow, why, oh, why can't I? He had so many great recordings, so many hits over the years, and his shows were just a collection of him performing those hits night after night. Berkeley College of Music professor Tim Ray shared many stages on tours with Bennett. He became his pianist and music director in 2016 when the singer was nearly 90. His instrument, his voice, it was so high level, even at that advanced age. He had so much range. He could belt out a big note. He could whisper and draw the audience in. And he knew just when to affect these kinds of variations in his singing style to communicate the meaning of a song. Maybe tomorrow I'll find what I'm after 
Ray says Bennett shifted skillfully from jazz standards to show tunes and pop songs. And one of the ones I thought was the best for showcasing his voice was a song called How Do You Keep the Music Playing? There's a particular long stretch of the end where he's singing this really long phrase without taking a break. Even into his 90s, he was nailing that every night. It was pretty remarkable. The same song Chachi Lopret played on WBCN back in 1986. He says whenever Bennett returned to Boston, he was always by his side. Boston was special to Tony. He had a small group of friends, and we'd always have dinner, either before the show or after the show. We'd take him to the North End. We'd take him to our favorite pasta places. He loved to enjoy food with friends and family. Bennett was family for Lepret. He says spending time with the warm-hearted legend and his music made him appreciate life more. Lepret shared how Bennett often ended shows with the tune, When Do the Bells Ring for Me? And audiences always gave him a standing ovation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. Those who say they wake up and feel life I say I'm ready, show me the way, show me those arms that say welcome to real life, and I'll stay, I'll stay, how many Parties more can I run to? How many little This is 90.9 WBUR. Sure gonna miss that guy. In the forecast, a beautiful night tonight. Clear skies, breezy, about 70 for a low. Tomorrow could make it to the mid to upper 80s. Chance of showers, also a fair share of sunshine. Wednesday should have unbridled summer sunshine. Highs about 90 degrees. It's 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top choice colleges. Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling college essays. More at myprompt.com NPR. And Circus Smirkus, New England's traveling youth circus, coming to Waltham July 27th to 30th and Newbury August 4th and 5th. Tickets at smirkus.org. Red Sox have the night off. They host the Atlanta Braves for two games starting tomorrow night. Attacks against postal carriers and mail theft are up. Postal services expanding safety measures, but they may not be enough. That story tomorrow morning with Rupa Shinoy on 90.9 WBUR. Start your day right here. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DEC. Using the power of visuals, presence, and storytelling to help speakers connect with audiences. More at presentationsbydeck.com.
When I talk to people in my field, I say, you hear me on the radio, even in California, or in Michigan, or in Austin. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. WBUR allows me to be both local and national. Supporting WBUR really works for us. To become a WBUR underwriter, go to WBUR.org slash sponsorship. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. More student-athletes are filing lawsuits against Northwestern University. They are related to a growing number of complaints about hazing and abuse in the school's sports programs. Attorneys and a former student gave a more detailed account of what they say occurred, and they charged the university failed to prevent hazing. Lisa Phillips of member station WBEZ has been watching what's happening and joins us now. Hi, Lisa. Hey there. So Lisa, Northwestern is already facing at least three other lawsuits. Another was filed today. Tell us what's different here. Yeah, this is the first lawsuit that has a named player, and it also has new information about alleged hazing within the football team. It has claims that members of the coaching staff were actually aware of hazing and even subjected to hazing. And details about the hazing have previously come out and includes a tradition known as running where a group of upperclassmen would hold down an individual so this might have been an underclassman or i guess even a, a member of a coaching staff while they're the whole party is nude and the upperclassmen would actually dry hump the younger players so some of these allegations you know were pretty graphic yeah. in detail um um, ben Crump is one of the attorneys representing the former players. Here's what he had to say about it. It's a real big deal when these young people have the courage to take a stand and refuse to be victims anymore, refuse to have their voices silenced, but to take a stand. And Lisa, I understand that a former player came forward today, was named as a plaintiff named Lloyd Yates, Lloyd Yates used to be a Northwestern quarterback. What did he have to say? Yeah, Yates talked about how difficult it was to come forward and how he and his other teammates were, you know, basically sworn to this like code of silence, right? Like they were expected to put up with these things or they they thought this was normal because they thought this was just part of being on the team and, and that they had to kind of undergo these traditions in order to uh, stay and, and be members of the team. But Yates said he was coming forward in order to both find justice and closure for himself and other athletes. And in order so that uh, future student athletes wouldn't have to undergo the trauma that he underwent. So here's, here's what Yates had to say to reporters today. No young teenager should have to bear what we did as freshman students. We were conditioned to believe that this behavior was normal which was sickening and unacceptable. To all the young athletes out there, I urge you to stand up. Stand up for yourself, even when the odds are against you. For I've come to realize that no one else will. And Lisa, how has Northwestern University reacted to all of this? Yeah, they've, uh, so the president actually sent out a letter today during uh, one of the players' press conferences. And he went on to talk about all of the accomplishments of the athletics department, but also to kind of acknowledge all of the disappointment that the Northwestern community has 
has had in light of these allegations. Um, so he talked about needing to implement accountability measures in order to, to uh, protect student athletes in the future, but also that there are players and coaches mm -hmm. that he says weren't participating in this kind of culture of hazing. WBEZ's Lisa Phillip, thank you. You're welcome. This weekend's Barbenheimer phenomenon was a case study in how to make a movie an event, something no streaming experience can rival. Barbie did it through the joyous call of pink. Oppenheimer achieved it partly through director Christopher Nolan's insistence that movies belong on the biggest screen possible. From Hollywood, NPR's Bilal Qureshi reports. Sunrise, Hollywood Boulevard's TCL Chinese Theater. This is one of only 30 in the world showing Oppenheimer on 70mm IMAX film. And this Sunday screening comes with refreshments, as I learned from fellow ticket holders Russell Carter and Cassie Grilly. Free coffee, baby. Free coffee. <laughs> you know why we're here at 6 a.m.? Because we waited till the last minute to get IMAX tickets. Was this a normal time to think about coming to see a film? No, I've never done this before. Have you done this before? Never at 5 a.m., no. <laughs> Christopher Nolan has insisted that IMAX 70mm film is how his drama about nuclear war is meant to be experienced. How about because this is the most important thing to ever happen in the history of the world? I refer to it as 3D without the glasses. Benny Har Evan covers cinema technology for Forbes magazine. It's part artistry, but also makes a great marketing. And it builds up a lot of hype. In the marketing buildup to the film's release, an online fandom emerged around Oppenheimer, unrelated to its subject matter. Videos of projectionists with 11 miles of large format film stock, huge negatives being assembled onto platters. It runs through our projection system at 1.7 meters a second, so it is flying through that system. The strategy worked. Many IMAX screenings are now sold out into August and accounted for more than a quarter of Oppenheimer's $80 million opening weekend. My name is Hoyte van Hoytema. I'm the DP of Oppenheimer. If you see for the first time an IMAX pure contact print from a negative projected on the screen, it's like somebody is slapping you in the face. Even though most people won't see it this way, I asked Hoyte van Hoytema if there is an elitism to saying one version is superior. Well, I'm a big snob when it comes to acquisition, right? The, the way that we acquire, you know, the, the images for this film. And I go through great, great lengths to do my part in, in making this experience as special as possible. So in a way, yes, I'm very snobby, but I, I also think that, as we say sometimes, you know, the proof is in the pudding, you know, you're not doing it just for self-indulgence sake. You're doing it because you're trying to create the best experience possible to see it. At three hours, Oppenheimer is the longest film ever made for IMAX. And it has pushed some projectors to the literal breaking point. Yes. That's the sound of a film reel stopping, an audience is booing, a few minutes into my second unsuccessful attempt to see it in 70mm here in Los Angeles. Aiden Beatty tweeted about a similar experience in Calgary. And then after 15 seconds, the audio completely cut out. And then we waited a few seconds and it popped back in. So I thought, oh, this is just something that might get fixed. But nope. Technology writer Benny Har Evan says physical film is expensive and unpredictable. And the fact that it can go wrong it's more of a performance, it's more of, a, of an event. And I think people are seeking that. In cinematic terms, it's the most exciting, you know, it's the biggest event there is. 
When I told Hoyte van Hoytema I wound up seeing the digital version, I asked him if I really needed to go back. Probably you do. <laughs> this can't be the future for all movies and audiences. There is an exclusivity to it. But Oppenheimer is one argument for the in-person, big-screen experience that clearly worked. Bilal Qureshi, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From EBSCO, committed to providing researchers with reliable, relevant online research databases, including Academic Search Ultimate and Business Source Ultimate. More at ebsco.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Clouds and sunshine off and on through the next couple of hours. Then starlit skies overnight tonight. Breezy, about 70 degrees. Tomorrow we should have periods of sunshine, but keep the umbrella around. Could have random rain and thunderstorms. High temperatures about 87 degrees. 82 degrees in the Boston area now. The time is 5.59. Want some new summer reads on us? Sign up for WBUR's Beach Books newsletter in the month of July, and you could win a $30 gift card to Beacon Hill Books. We're picking from our subscribers each week, so sign up for Beach Books at WBUR.org slash Beach Books. I'm WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Thousands of people in Israel are protesting a new law that alters the balance of power in that country. They want to make Israel full of dictatorship, discriminate LGBT, discriminate uh, Palestinians. The law strips Israel's Supreme Court of a key check on the power of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government. This is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, streamers have been removing content from their platforms recently. They're doing this to make or at least not lose money. The content creators say it's contributing to a climate that's not tenable for them. Weight Watchers providing prescription weight loss drugs. We'll hear from the author of a report on the issue. And the film's Barbie and Oppenheimer blew past predictions to spark the fourth biggest box office weekend in Hollywood history. Critic Bob Mondello looks at what their successes say about the state of the movie biz. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. 
The Justice Department is suing Texas over its use of floating barriers in the Rio Grande that were installed by Governor Greg Abbott to block migrants from crossing into the U.S. illegally from Mexico. The DOJ says Abbott and the state violated federal law by installing the barriers in U.S. waters without getting permission from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. This came after Abbott told the White House he would not remove the barrier. The Texas Newsroom's Julian Aguilar has more. The latest statement from the Texas Republican came just hours before a deadline the Department of Justice set last week for the state to begin removing the buoys. The Department of Justice told Abbott the buoys violate federal law, raise humanitarian concerns, and interfere with the federal government's actions on border security. In his response, Abbott said Texas has the right as a sovereign state to secure its borders and will see the Biden administration in court. Abbott also said the crisis on the border is of Biden's own making and that Texans are, quote, paying the price for the administration's failure. I'm Julian Aguilar in El Paso. The Israeli parliament has narrowly ratified part of a judicial overhaul that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu calls necessary. His efforts to limit the power of Israel's Supreme Court have sparked widespread protests, and the U.S. says it's disappointed by today's vote. NPR's Michelle Kellman has more. Major changes in a democracy must have as broad a consensus as possible. That's the message that President Biden has been sending to Israel, according to his spokesperson. The U.S. statement says that it was unfortunate that the vote on the judicial overhaul took place with, quote, the slimmest possible majority. The Biden administration says it will continue to work with Israeli leaders as they try to build a broader consensus about judicial reforms. Biden's relations with Prime Minister Netanyahu and his right-wing government have been strained over this issue and over Jewish settlement construction in the occupied West Bank. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Talks resume tomorrow between UPS and the Teamsters Union before their current contract expires in about a week. The sticking point is pay, and the union says it's prepared to strike if they don't get an agreement. UPS says it will start training replacement workers, but that would be a problem with the UPS pilots who are part of a different union. Those pilots wouldn't strike, but they would honor the union's picket lines, and they wouldn't fly. Twitter's Blue Bird is no more. Elon Musk unveiled a new X logo in its place as part of a major rebranding of the social media platform that he bossed last year for $44 million. Musk wants to make Twitter into a so-called everything app, similar to WeChat in China, where users bank, chat, make purchases, and scroll social media all on the same app. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Charles River Watershed Association says it will use $400,000 in federal funds to help mitigate the effects of climate change along the Charles River. Congresswoman Catherine Clark says the money will help mitigate the future risk of flooding. She says we are already feeling the effects of climate change. Brutal heat devastating floods, raging forest fires. We are no longer talking about predictions or estimates. We can see and feel this crisis for ourselves. Some of the money will be used to better manage stormwater runoff. State lawmakers are closing in on a new funding plan for roads and bridges. 
Legislative negotiators indicated today a final agreement is on the way. The House and Senate each approved $350 million in infrastructure spending plans in March, but a compromise had to be reached between the two plans that could come this week. State lawmakers have still not agreed to a state budget for the fiscal year that began earlier this month. Former U.S. Senator and New Hampshire Attorney General Kaylee Ayotte is running to be that state's governor. Ayotte says she is running because, quote, She fears that New Hampshire is one election away from turning into Massachusetts. Republican former New Hampshire Senate President Chuck Morse is also running for the GOP nomination for governor. Chris Sununu announced last week that he is not seeking re-election. This fall, Massasoit Community College in Brockton plans to be the first among the state's community colleges to offer a degree in black studies. The two-year associate degree program will incorporate history, literature, social sciences, and visual arts. Massasoit's Corinne Sauvignon helped design the field of study. Students who take this degree is not necessarily someone who may want to continue to pursue a Black Studies four-year program, but someone who wants to take cultural content into the scope of their career pathway. Sauvignon says the degree will prepare Massasoit students for fields that include law, nonprofit work, and education in an urban setting. The first woman to lead Berkeley College of Music will not be returning to her post. Erica Mull was appointed Berkeley president in 2020 and took an abrupt leave of absence last month. The school's board of trustees made the announcement today without providing further details. Mull is a composer and conductor who previously worked at the University of Southern California. She will be succeeded by Berkeley provost David Bogan and Executive Director Betsy Newman for now. And Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is sharing the lineup for tonight's city movie nights. They'll be screened at dusk at parks across the city through September 1st. The first showing on August 8th will be Minions, The Rise of Gru at Moakley Park. Other scheduled screenings include Marcel the Shell with Shoes On and more films as well. This is WBUR. Should have a clear and breezy night ahead, about 70 for low. Tomorrow could make it to the mid to upper 80s, chance of showers, but also a fair share of sunshine. Wednesday should be hot, could hit 90. 82 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It has been a historic and polarizing day in Israel, a day that has seen mass protests against a just-passed law that remakes the balance of power in the country. The law strips Israel's Supreme Court of a key check on the power of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government. President Biden had urged Israel not to pass it without a broad public consensus, and today the White House is calling the new law, quote, unfortunate. Israel's president is calling this a time of emergency. While NPR's Daniel Estrin has been out all day speaking with protesters, he joins me now from Jerusalem. Hey there, Daniel. Hi, Mary Louise. Wow, Daniel, I can I can hear you are right in the middle of it. Tell, tell me where you are, what you see. Yeah, I'm on a bridge overlooking a pretty amazing standoff. I'm seeing two Israeli uh, police trucks, water cannons. Uh, One of them has just now approached protesters, thousands of them in the streets, blocking a main road with Israeli flags. And now we're seeing this police water truck charging toward the protesters. It's spraying one, two, three volleys of water. This is an incredible sight uh, happening right in front of the Supreme Court. 
This is where protesters have been gathered all day, and now they're being dispersed with, uh, with water cannons. Wow. Okay, and so why is this so controversial? We said, we said this will reduce the court's oversight over the government. Just spell out for me how so. You know, this is really the first major move that the government is making in a much broader effort to weaken the court's oversight. Um, this law will uh, block the Supreme Court from being able to intervene in the hiring and firing of public officials and also intervene in their decision making. So the Supreme Court can no longer tell the government such and such you know, decision or appointment of a senior official is unreasonable, doesn't serve the public interest. This has animated so many protesters because it is the Supreme Court that is the main protector of so many individual freedoms in Israel's system of government. Uh, the, the court protects women's rights, equality, LGBTQ rights. So take a listen to one Israeli protester I met, Maya Orr. Israel is in a very, very bad place today, in a very, very sad place today. And I hope the government will think that being a democracy meaning not only the power of the majority, but taking into consideration the minorities and their rights. And so now there will be a petition against this law, and the question is, will the Supreme Court actually uh, take this up? We heard her say just there, Israel is in a very, very bad place. How is Netanyahu defending this move? He says this law is the essence of democracy. It will allow the elected government, he says, to carry out its agenda. And he says uh, he is still in favor of dialogue with the opposition. He's willing to hold a dialogue with them for even the uh, next four months on any future judicial changes. And the protests are expected to continue, or what happens now? Certainly, we will see protesters continue to block roads in the coming week. There are concerns about military reservists refusing to show up for duty, uh, and that has leaders worried about rising tensions on Israel's border with its enemies. And legal experts are worried what could the government possibly do now that this new law um, unshackles it from uh, some oversights, some oversight powers of the Supreme Court. NPR's Daniel Estrin in the thick of it today in Jerusalem. Thank you, Daniel. You're welcome. The Weight Watchers Way is pretty well known by now. Join up, eat according to a point system, connect with other members, and hopefully lose weight. That has basically been their model for the last 60 years. But a new class of drugs known by names like Ozempic and Wagovi has changed everything. Originally developed to regulate type 2 diabetes, these drugs cause weight loss. And now Weight Watchers is getting in on the prescription game. Maria Aspen is a senior writer for Fortune, where she's been following this story. Welcome. Thanks so much, Mona. It's great to be here. So, Maria, Weight Watchers is in the business of selling weight loss. Can you tell us about the business rationale behind this decision to move into offering weight loss medications? Sure. So Weight Watchers has weathered lots and lots of fads over the course of its uh, history. But these drugs are just everywhere, um, you know, in pop culture, in business. And we've seen both Weight Watchers and a newer dieting company called Noom embrace these drugs, sometimes known as GLP-1s, in, in the past year. Uh, and for both of these companies, it's kind of an acknowledgement that the diet industry is moving on and that these drugs are inevitable. And if they don't get on board, they might be left behind. Yeah. 
I mean, Maria, for any of us who have struggled with our own weight and turned to places like Weight Watchers or Noom for help and support, this kind of feels like a big about face. This is diametrically opposed to what places like Weight Watchers have told their clients for years now about how to sustainably and effectively lose weight. In your conversations, is that something that Weight Watchers leadership is thinking about? Yeah, it is. And and I would agree. You know, these uh, Weight Watchers, again, has has been around for 60 years, basically telling us all, well, you just have to do the work. And now executives say the CEO says, well, you know, the science has evolved. And so we are, too. Um, I think they're trying to thread the needle of showing that their old way is still useful while accepting that there are these new technologies, new medications out there that are just fundamentally more effective than their core product has been shown to be. Um, There are also a lot of reasons why people might not want to take, you know, these so-called miracle drugs or might not have access to them or might not be able to afford them. So there's still potentially a place for the sort of historical traditional businesses of what Weight Watchers and Noom have sold, but they're very clearly betting on trying to embrace the new without completely losing all of their customers who have liked the old. Over the last several years, we've started to see a small societal shift towards body positivity and a real de-emphasis on diet culture, which can be harmful to many people's mental health, are there concerns that big companies like Weight Watchers and Noom, they're making these drugs more available, could lead to renewed discrimination against people who are living in bigger bodies? Absolutely. That was one of the first concerns raised by uh, Tegris Osborne, executive director of the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance. You know, she pointed out that the presence of these drugs, the availability of these drugs has actually, in, in her experience and perspective, has actually increased the stigma and discrimination towards fat people because, you know, before it might have been, oh, well, you just haven't put in the work to lose the weight. Now it's it's even easier to lose the weight. You you could just take this miracle drug and, you know, you're just lazy that you haven't done it. So there is a real concern that, you know, the drugs are made by pharmaceutical companies that are not generally household names. Um, but Weight Watchers, everybody knows it. Noom is, again, a, a newer company, but something that a lot of people have heard of. And uh, Osborne and others are are concerned that by having these household names embrace these drugs and promote and sell these drugs, it's going to actually damage a lot of the work that the fat acceptance and body positivity movements have done. That was Maria Aspen, senior writer at Fortune. Thank you. Thank you so much. Big weekend at the multiplex. The films Barbie and Oppenheimer blew past predictions to spark the fourth biggest box office weekend in Hollywood history and the highest weekend not led by a Marvel or Star Wars sequel. So what does the triumph of Barbenheimer tell us about the state of the movie biz? We asked NPR's Bob Mondello. Leave it to a hot pink comedy. Hi, Barbie! Hi, Ken! And a three-hour biopic to pack cinemas that superheroes have been leaving half-empty since the start of the pandemic. 30 million people turned out to see movies this weekend, about half of them for Greta Gerwig's $155 million blockbuster, Barbie. It scored the top opening weekend of 2023 and the top opening ever for a film directed by a woman, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, about the father of the atom bomb. 
was no bomb at the box office with $80 million, a serious talky drama that opened better than the summer's Mission Impossible and Indiana Jones sequels. And while usually a big blockbuster swamps everything else at the multiplex, Barbenheimer's rising tide lifted all boats. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning still raked in a perfectly respectable $20 million. The surprise indie hit Sound of Freedom matched that number. And as those four movies sold out, overflow crowds filled up whatever was in smaller auditoriums. The industry is so pleased that on Friday, Dead Reckoning star Tom Cruise told an interviewer he was planning a personal Barbenheimer double feature. It'll probably be like Oppenheimer first and then Barbie. And in response, Barbie's Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie tweeted photos of themselves holding tickets to see Mission Impossible. Call it a Hollywood love fest for an expanded marketplace. And that's the key here. Since the start of the pandemic, there have been some hits, nearly all of them superhero or action sequels, aimed at male audiences. That's because studios, mostly led by male executives, tend to go with what has worked before and seem to think that men choose what to see and their girlfriends and wives go along. I thought I might stay over tonight. Did you what? I'm actually not sure. But those male-oriented sequels invariably monopolize the box office the week they open, with no halo effect on other films. Barbie, which is not a sequel, and which has women and girls making up almost 70% of its audience, left plenty of room for male-oriented hits. Oppenheimer, also not a sequel, is one of those hits. Whether lessons will be learned from this is anyone's guess, but with writers and actors on strike for the foreseeable future, studio executives will have time to stop study up, and no doubt come up with creative solutions. It's a pretty safe bet, for instance, that there'll soon be a Barbie 2. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Dow grew by more than a half percent today. That stretches its rally to 11 days. That is the longest winning streak in six years. S&P rose four-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq picked up two-tenths of a percent. The average gas price in Massachusetts has ticked up two cents in the past week. It's now 3.57 a gallon. AAA Northeast says the increase is primarily due to higher oil prices. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. Coming up on Marketplace this evening, the city of Cambridge is expanding a universal basic income program for low-income families. The city and the partners were really committed to being able to expand on it. It was just having the money to be able to do it. Our story is coming up on Marketplace, which begins at 6.30. Pretty hot still out there right now. Sunshine moving in and out overnight tonight. We should have mainly clear skies, about 70 for a low. Could get some summer thunderstorms tomorrow, but also a good bit of sunshine back up in the mid-80s. 82 degrees now in the Boston area at 6.20. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, with a lineup of family events, including local food fest this Saturday and concerts every Thursday evening. VolanteFarms.com. 
This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Dozens of young Latino men in California have developed severe lung disease, and at least 10 have died after working in shops that make kitchen and bathroom countertops. As NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports, public health experts believe there's a lot more sick workers in the countertop industry. For countertops, there's a popular material called quartz. Quartz is a kind of engineered stone. Folks like Martha Stewart have extolled its virtues. Quartz needs no sealing or polishing like granite or marble. And because of its durability, it will always remain glossy and smooth. But compared to granite or marble, quartz contains a lot more of the mineral silica. Silica dust can fly into the air when a slab of raw countertop material gets cut to order. And this dust can damage the lungs. So in recent years, when cases of lung disease started appearing in the countertop industry, public health experts became worried. Things are heading in the direction that we feared. You know, we've had more and more people presenting very severely Shafali Gandhi is a pulmonologist at the University of California, San Francisco. She and some colleagues have just published a report describing over 50 sick countertop workers in California. Some died or needed lung transplants. Almost all were Spanish-speaking Latino men. And they're all very young. Now, work sites can control silica dust with ventilation, sprays of water, and proper masks. But California's Workplace Safety Agency says it looks like most countertop fabrication shops in its state are not complying with federal silica rules. That's why the agency has fast-tracked the development of new protections for these workers. David Goldsmith is an epidemiologist at George Washington University. He says the newly reported cases in California are concerning. I am certain that this is an underestimate of the severity of the problem in California and by inference, it's an underestimate of the severity of the problem in the whole United States. He says it seems that other states aren't paying as much attention to this, despite an urgent need to figure out how widespread this kind of lung disease in the countertop industry really is. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News. When studios first started streaming content online, it felt too good to be true. All of a sudden, there was something for everyone at every minute of every day. Now, with writers and actors on strike, that age of plenty has turned into a race for survival. Streamers like Netflix and HBO's Max are canceling seasons, taking movies and shows off their platforms, angering not only creators, but also fans. NPR's Elizabeth Blair dug into what it means. Here's some sound from a movie you cannot watch. The lockdown will commence. Come on! In five. Four, three. The movie is called Crater. It cost a reported $53 million to make. It's a sci-fi adventure about teens who live on the moon some 200 years in the future. This is from the trailer. The sky on Earth, is it really blue? Yeah. Wow. Crater debuted on Disney Plus in May and then disappeared two months later. It seems very abrupt. Now, some people, like Betsy Bosdeck and her two kids, did get to see Crater before it got yanked. It's pretty emotionally intense about friendship and separation, and it was a great family movie night for us. Bosdeck is the editorial director at Common Sense Media, which reviews content for kids. She was disappointed. Sort of the promise when a lot of these streamers launched was that you got access to the whole catalog forever. So I think it's a little bit of a a feeling of a rug being pulled out from under you. And for creators of content that gets removed? It's soul crushing. There is nothing we can do. 
Zoe Marshall is the screenwriter of another movie that was removed, this time by Paramount+. Plus. Maybe start thinking about what life might look like after football. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Fantasy Football is a comedy about a teen girl whose father is an older professional football player. I've lived in seven cities before my 16th birthday. All because my football star dad is fumbling away his career. I wanted it to be a smart picture of what it's like to be a smart young black girl who has a positive relationship with her black father. And make money. Historically, writers, actors, and others made money for the content they created. And then, when their shows were rerun or sold to another network, they got more money, residuals. But with streamers, it's more typical to get a flat fee. And if your show gets taken down, it's kind of like taking it off the market. As far as fantasy football being removed, they may never do anything with it again. So I may not see any additional residuals for something that made them an untold amount of money. Untold is the key word there. It infuriates content creators that streamers don't share ratings, which makes it hard for them to negotiate future projects. A show can even become a hit, and yet the actors and writers still don't make any extra money. But corporations do share information with investors. On Disney's last earnings call, executives said that removing content would give them a tax write-off. CEO Bob Iger explained another reason for removing content. There's too much of it. When they first launched Disney+, Plus, We wanted to flood the so-called digital shelves with as much content as possible. Thinking that would attract subscribers, or sub-growth. Didn't happen, he said. We realized that we made a lot of content that is not necessarily driving subgrowth, um, and we're getting much more surgical about what it is we make. He also pointed out that a streamer can't just put shows out there and hope people find them. You're spending a lot of money marketing things that are not going to have an impact on the bottom line, except negatively. One thing we also know is that our films, those that are released theatrically, big tentpole movies in particular, are great subdrivers. Uh, but we were spreading our marketing costs so thin that we were not allocating enough money to even market them when they came on the service. But the beauty of streaming was supposed to be options, something for everyone. I'm getting really sick of my favorite shows being canceled after one season when they're left on massive cliffhangers. 15-year-old Kara Horton was a huge fan of the series Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies, which was just nominated for two Emmys. My brilliance turned to dust. Paramount Plus canceled the Pink Ladies after one season. They do say they're shopping it around. Still, Horton was furious. Immediately my first thought was, what can we do to save it? She started a petition that now has more than 42,000 signatures. I think streaming services have really forgotten that it takes a couple seasons before a show, like, gets big and picks up. She's absolutely correct. Maureen Ryan is a contributing editor to Vanity Fair. She's been covering the entertainment industry for 30 years. Her new book is called Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood. She says the promise of streaming has been broken. What is the point of this golden streaming age if the creative people, the consumers, if they're all kind of agitated about thing, you know, them not getting what they thought they were going to get, you know, it's just, 
It's a really rough moment, and I think it's basically Streamageddon's Reckoning. That would be like the bad action movie I would make out of all of this. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. A record number of families are now in state-funded shelters in Massachusetts. We'll look at what's behind the increasing need and how well state officials are responding tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Start your day here tomorrow. Tonight, breezy, should have starlit skies. About 70 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, periods of sunshine, but you should have the umbrella around because we could have some random thunderstorms. Highs about 87 degrees. Join the Radio Boston team Wednesday, August 2nd at City Space for an evening of comic book culture. Meet local cartoonists, see their work, and take home some comic creations. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. 82 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. Marketplace is next at 6. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities.